Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Bibles. I love all this like chatting that's going on. It's like really good. I hated to stop it, but we got we got stuff to do. Um, welcome today. Actually, this is uh, this is episode fifty-two of the podcast. Just so you know, does that mean we've been at it for a year? Yeah. Actually, more than a year because we've missed a few weeks. But um, yeah, so um, welcome to Bible study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Longman. Um, we're in Revelation chapter 18, um, and if you got the sheet with questions on it, it should have the number 21 up in the corner because we try and throw as many numbers at you as possible to confuse you. But we are in Revelation 18, um, and I'll start like I usually do with any questions that anybody has about anything. Who goes first? Second Corinthians fourteen seven that you brought up in the news and notes. What did I put in there? I do this stuff and I don't remember it. <laughs> I thought it was great. Second Corinthians 14.7. Okay. Now i got to look. And that was in the news and notes? I stuck it in there? I think so. Second Corinthians. Well, there's not Second Corinthians 14, so that's not it. There's only 13 chapters in Second Corinthians. But... <laughs> Sometimes I throw those at you just to see if you're paying attention. Right? <laughs> it's in the news and notes. It, right. The Longman Amplified. <laughs> I just make up my own chapters and verses. <laughs> Where? Okay, so you said it was in news and notes? What was I talking about? Or was that the clarion? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's on the prayer list. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. It's um, Second Chronicles. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that actually, you know what? Into something interesting. It has been in there since I've been here. Oh. Yeah, we just. Well, maybe not entirely that, but. So the verse is. Um, that, maybe that's not it. I know what you're talking about. Hang on, hang on. I can pull up the prayer list directly. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's me. Come on. Hang on. Google doesn't like me right now. It wants me to verify that I am who I say I am, which I guess I should appreciate. All right. It is. Bloop, bloop, bloop. It is Second Chronicles seven fourteen. There you go. And yeah, so the verse, the this is on their prayer list. If you guys, you know, look at the end of the prayer list, you'll find this. Um, but it's it's if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's, it's a promise, right, that God wants us to pray and wants us to come to him with what's on our hearts and, and to give that to him and that he's got something in return for that, that he brings us back to him and that he heals the land. And so that's, that's why it's on the prayer list. Yeah, sorry I was a little dense about picking up your reference. <laughs> cool, good. And what else? Any other questions about anything going on? Um, Y'all, I guess, have heard the news that Pastor Hope has returned our call. Um, so he's going to stay in Texas. Um, I had a good conversation with him last Friday, and he said that 
He really enjoyed the visit here. I told him he was missing out because we would have made a terrific team. and <laughs> He's not going to get to experience any of that. But um, he said it really did. I don't think Tennessee was ever really in the running. But he said that what it came down to was a sense that there's still work that he has to do in Texas. And, and I think he recognized what I put to him was I think it was the right guy at the wrong time. Because yeah. um, he, he we'll would. Yeah, there you go. Somebody asked if we can go ahead and just issue another call right now. <laughs> Say, no, no, we weren't kidding. Come. But I did tell him <laughs> we were texting last week um, as he was kind of debating stuff. And I, if you remember last week's readings, was the, this vision that Paul had of somebody from Macedonia. Do you remember that first reading that we had? And um, Robert, it's this one right here. 21 is the one. 21 is the one. Yeah. Um, and so at one point I texted him and I said, you know, as we were doing the readings this week in church, I was thinking about you because in my mind I was hearing it as um, one night he had a vision from a man from Ro- of a man from Rogers saying, Pastor Lee, come here and help us. <laughs> he laughed. So he laughed. He said, I wish it was that clear. <laughs> Sadly, not so much. All right, but um, he left. He sent us a terrific letter. If you haven't seen it, there are copies in the narthex that you can grab one. But um, we we continue to pray for him and his ministry there. And the call team now will get back together. We'll look at um, the candidates that we've looked at and decide if um, the other two that we presented are the ones we want to, which I expect we probably will, um, or if we want to kind of open it up and, and hunt for more names and and see if there's somebody else out there that we've overlooked. So. That will move forward, and I just ask you to continue to pray for that. Um, any other questions, thoughts, comments, observations, complaints? Any of that? What is today? Uh, May 29th. Okay, we'll start with uh, our devotion as usual. This is from the book By Faith Alone. Um, it's a series of devotions written by Martin Luther, and we just kind of take whatever the one for the day is. Um, today's happens to be John 3.35. The father loves his son and has put everything in his power. The title of this is Jesus is both God and man. How do we bring together the two truths that Jesus is Lord over all and at the same time is a human being? I mean, if Jesus is God, how could God put everything in Jesus' power? If Jesus is God, he already has everything. So how can anything else be given to him? You already know that there are two natures in Jesus Christ, but there's only one person. These two natures keep their characteristics, but they also transfer them to each other. This has caused some confusion. For example, Mary gave birth to Jesus 1,539 years ago. Remember, this is Luther writing in his time. So some ask, well, if he's only 1,539 years old, then how can he be eternal? Jesus suffered on the cross when Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea. So some wonder, well, if he suffered under Pilate, then how can he have everything in his power? How do we reconcile all this? The two natures of Christ, human and divine, are inseparable, and they're united in one person. The characteristics of one nature are attributed to the other nature. For instance, dying is a part of being human. When human nature is united with the divine in one person, death also becomes a divine attribute. Therefore, we can say God became a man, God suffered, God died. If you separate the human from the divine, that statement would be a lie, for God can't die. 
But if we say that the two natures reside in one person, then we have spoken correctly. I'm not sure if that cleared anything up. <laughs> but I mean, that's, the, that's sort of the nature of the beast, that when you try and talk about this deep truth like that of, of the two natures of Christ, there's only so far we can go to kind of grasp that with our minds. We, you know, yeah. we can kind of sort of make sense of it, but we'll never completely grasp it. Our understanding is not to that level. Right, exactly, exactly. That's a godly thing, and we can do what we can, but we're never going to get it. So also the Trinity. I mean, um, you know, we have the Athanasian Creed. When we get to Trinity Sunday, we'll get to use that one again. That, that wrestles with this idea of the Trinity and what it means that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons but one God. You know, how does all of that stuff play out? And it also actually wrestles with this, too, with this, with the two natures of Christ and what it means that he has a divine nature and a human nature, 100% God, 100% man, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But even with the Athanasian Creed, I think you kind of get to the end of it and you sort of feel, you know, unsatisfied because... It doesn't answer everything, and it probably can't. And and I think some people will say, well, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll understand it. And I, I kind of think maybe when we get to heaven, we just won't care. <laughs> it, just, it, just won't, it just won't matter. It just is what it is. Well, I, I looked at it more yeah. as, a, as kind of a thought. Mm -hmm. In other words, we kind of live in the physical universe here. But when we get to heaven, yeah. you're more like a thought. And if you knew somebody here on earth, You'll see that person yeah. the way you remember that person. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And you could see a whole host of people right. as you remember. Right. So what happens in the resurrection then when we get our bodies back? Well, that I haven't figured that one. No, that's all right. My, my, <laughs> I figure, because Paul talks about some of that in 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit. He talks about it being like a seed that then is, comes back, you know, the way it's supposed to be. And I think the, the promise is that we come, when we're resurrected, we get our bodies back, but they're made perfect. Do we have to have the same one? I, well, no. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the made perfect part that's so important because, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be ripped and buff. And, you know, I'll look like Brad Pitt. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> That'd be all right, too. All right. That's a good devotion if it sparks conversation. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, as we remember and, and rejoice in your ascension to sit at the right hand of God the Father and what that means for us, especially the coming of the Holy Spirit and that power to be able to be witnesses and to share this gospel with others. Um, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today as we study your word. Um, send him to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can uh, better understand your word and to take from it the truth that you want us to know. Uh, so we're going to ask all of that of you, and we're going to pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Um, a special welcome to Jaden. Glad to have you with us. Um, Jaden's grandmother, right? Tarsha's your grandmother. Jaden's grandmother is in the women's class right now. So he, then with Bible study or Sunday school not going on, I invited Jaden to join us. So we're going to throw all the Revelation stuff at you in this class. <laughs> It'll be fun. Ken raised some interesting questions last week as we talked about um, this notion where Jesus says that, that on the last day, um, some, one will be taken and one will be left. And what does that mean and how does it fit into the, what we're reading in Revelation and all that kind of stuff?
So I, I'm gonna I want to unpack some of that because I, I think that was it's confusing, right? It and how does it fit together, and, and what does it there mean? There are people that believe and are Christians <clears throat> right. that believe both ways. Right. Right. So I did a little digging, and a lot of it comes down to this. Let me read you the passage just so that you kind of have some context of where this comes from. It's in Matthew, and it's also in Luke's gospel. Um, it's Jesus speaking. He says, um, let me go back to a good starting point. It's No one knows that day and hour is the, the heading. Concerning that day and hour, meaning the end times, right? Judgment day. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, in context, I understand what Jesus is talking about. It's, it's in the midst of this parable about the man who has left and he's left some people in charge of his house and he goes away and they don't know when he's coming back and he surprises them or maybe the thief comes um, because he, you know, he, all of this kind of stuff. And Jesus basically takes this little detour and talks about the coming of the Son of Man when Judgment Day happens and Jesus returns, okay? And it's got those phrases in there. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. What's going on? Yeah. Tell us plainly. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know that's not how this works. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, it's how you get you to come back. Right. <laughs> In our next session, no. So what do y'all think is going on? And, and, and I want to first explore kind of how that hits you and what your first interpretation or understanding is of what's happening. So um, yeah, he's just given a, as he always does, it seems like in Scripture, he's giving us an example that we can understand. Okay. I mean, the story here where he's talking yeah. about, you don't have any idea when he's coming. Okay, so one important point is his main thing here is about the timing, right? right? Yeah. The main point that Jesus is making is you don't know when this is going to happen. And, and he uses this example of everybody before the flood and what it was like for them and how the flood just came on, okay? So timing is the main point of what he's talking about. Now, that's cool, that's important. So how do we understand what he's saying then when he says two will be in the field, one will be taken and one left? What's going on there? How do we understand what he means? Uh, depends on the timing in okay. relationship to Armageddon or the, okay. the, the end times when, when uh, there's going to be wars and there's yeah. going to be, uh, it's going to be so terrible that God will have to stop it. Okay. Otherwise, 
Otherwise, nobody would survive. So there's an assumption that you're making in this as to when that might happen. And your yeah. assumption could change your interpretation and understanding, yeah, exactly right? right? And what you're kind of sort of dancing around the edges of is the millennium, right? In, in Revelation, it talks about this thousand-year period. And that plays a critical role. What you understand about the millennium plays a critical role in how you understand this. Is the millennium something? So in Revelation, it talks about a thousand year reign of God or something like that. And the question is, when is this thousand year reign? Is there um, an idea of a rapture that we sometimes hear about, that some people will be taken out so that they don't have to deal with the stuff that goes on for that thousand years? Or does the thousand years come first and we've all got to deal with it and then there's something that goes on? Or is the thousand years not even literally a thousand years? What's going on with all of that stuff? So you're absolutely right that that stuff plays a huge role in how you understand this. Go ahead. Dude, like I, well, my grandfather, he told this story because they were missionaries in the Philippines. Uh -huh. And he had uh, one... I guess I, I can't remember exactly, but the way that he told the story, I remember vividly because he was talking about this this man in the Philippines that he had been witnessing to and working on. And he said, "Well, you know, I really, I'm really interested. I'll, uh, but I'm not ready yet. I'll come to you, you know, <laughs> whenever, you know, whenever I can." And he was, oh wow, like eaten by an alligator the next oh, day. Really. <laughs> so that's that's the light. That was how he kind of told me. You don't okay. ever know yeah. when something right. might happen. So right. be ready now. Yeah. So he's taking this passage out of Matthew, and and using it, the thrust of it as being you don't know when, and it doesn't even mess really with what does it mean to be taken or left, yeah. right? But taken or left. And understand, I'm building a case here, okay? Yeah. I want us to kind of walk through this slowly and kind of understand how our presuppositions and how our assumptions about things are coloring what we're hearing here, okay? So when you bump into two men are in the field, one, are t one is taken, one is left, what's happening to the one who is taken? That's why I keep wondering where he's taken to. Oh, to Ooh. Yeah, I'd say that's to heaven. Okay, so but your assumption is heaven. Whether that one's left on earth or goes, you know, or doesn't get, I mean, okay. separated from God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd say but, taken is a good thing here. Okay, all right. One of the references we can always go to is what Jesus told the thief on the cross, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. Okay. Take it. Ta okay, so, so that's how you, and, and understand, there's an assumption in that that leads you to that conclusion, right? What else? Another thing that I had heard over time, too, like when Christ comes again, on yes. the second coming, yep. that we will meet him in the sky. Okay, year. okay. Mm -hmm. So these taken, when he's coming, right. the Christians will be are taken and meeting okay. him meet in the him. sky. Okay, in the air. all right, good. Good, I like this stuff. Hey. This is good, y'all. Are we separating, is he separating the sheep from the goats? That's what I'm oh. thinking. So separation is a big part of what's going on here. That's and that's actually a really insightful comment. Because most commonly when Judgment Day somehow or another comes up in Scripture, the, the main thrust of the imagery is not necessarily about going up or staying. It's about separation somehow or another. Okay, So that's a lot of what's going on here is this depiction of the separation. Um, 
that is more consistent with the other ways that Scripture talks about. You all have heard the phrase that Scripture interprets Scripture, right? Yes. If you want to understand Scripture, you got to look at where Scripture talks about other things, and that helps shed some light on stuff. Okay. okay. That's what we keep doing in Revelation. Right. Totally. Back. Oh, big time, yeah. We keep jumping back to other places that talk about it to shed light on what Revelation is talking about. Because Revelation by itself is weird. This is just crazy stuff, right? All right. Well, I keep thinking about something else. Okay. Being left, is that bad or good? <laughs> That's a huge point. Because I think, oh, it might not be too bad to be left. I don't know. Okay. So, so our assumption as we read it, for those who say that taken means taken up to heaven, is that being left is bad. That's an assumption. It's not stated outright here. Right? right? No, right. We're assuming that. Okay. We're assuming that. So, I want to read you some stuff from Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs' excellent Concordia commentary on Matthew. Dr. Gibbs is fabulous. He's at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, was one of my professors when I came through the SEM. He's just terrific. Um, it's more than a little bit, but I think it's worth hearing it. So, y'all bear with me. Um, the title of this section is, Why Does No One Know About That Day and Hour? And, and the answer is because it'll be like the days leading up to Noah, which we talked about. Um, Jesus immediately explains why no one does or can know the time of his parousia, which is you know the end time, his coming again. The period leading up to the consummation of the age will be like the period leading up to the great flood, the cataclysm that came on the world during the days of Noah. And so here, Jesus is comparing the time leading up to the flood with the time leading up to his return with regard to one point and one point only. Jesus' words place no emphasis on the fact that the people in Noah's day were evil or worse than previous generations or anything like that. The point of comparison chosen by Christ is the suddenness, the lack of any warning before this event. This is emphasized by how he actually describes what people were doing all the time on the day on which Noah entered the ark. Again, there's no hint of how perverse the people were upon whom the flood came. Rather, the Lord emphasizes only that it was business as usual among Noah's contemporaries. Life's normal patterns of food and drink, forming human families, being formed in those families were the orders of the day. And Jesus places no negative judgment on these activities. In fact, no judgment at all. In themselves, they are the normal routines of human society. And the important point is repeated in chapter 24, verse 39. They did not know until the flood came and took them all. In the unknowable time of the return of the Son of Man, that's what's in view. So he's talking about timing, okay? Jesus immediately creates a smaller image to repeat his point and to bring to the fore the idea of separation that will be part of every unit in the rest of this discourse. So Jesus is going to keep talking about this kind of stuff, and the context matters, you know. Jesus portrays at that time when he will come two pairs of people, two men presumably working in a field and two women grinding flour at a mill. And in each case, one member of the pair will be taken. If you want the Greek, it's paralambanatai. And the other will be left, a theatai. So what Jesus doesn't specify here is where the one will be taken. That raises a question. Is being taken the positive outcome or is being left the positive outcome? 
On the main, being left is more likely part of the image that corresponds to salvation at Jesus' return. So the following data lead to this conclusion. He's going to back it up. Strictly speaking, the lexical possibilities, that is the, the translations and the understandings of what the words mean, for the two verbs involved lean the other direction. That is, in favor of being taken, meaning salvation. Matthew employs paralambano, take, 16 times, and the verb never has an intrinsically negative nuance. This evangelist, however, does employ the, the verb afiemi, which is the other one being left, with a negative meaning of abandoned or left behind, often in a pejorative sense. But without consideration of the context, then, to be, ta to be left is likely to be the negative fate, which is kind of how we understood it as we first read it. Um, and, and I will insert here that, that our culture is heavily influenced by Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series. Okay? Y'all have heard of it, even if you haven't read it. It has, it has played a role in how people understand this stuff. Okay? Three other factors, though, guide in the opposite direction. The first is close at hand in the preceding verses about what happened when the flood suddenly came upon an unsuspecting humanity. Contrasting Noah, who went into the ark with everyone else, Jesus says, the flood came and took them all. And the Greek verb took uh, is, of course, a different one than, will be than the, the one will be taken used later. The two verbs aren't unrelated, however, and the first image of the flood taking them all can be said to prepare a careful reader or hearer to conclude that one will be taken refers to judgment, not salvation. Now, the second factor is actually a larger biblical theme. Merkel has noted how the Old Testament prophets speak frequently of God's judgment coming upon Israel in terms of the apostates, that is, those who are against true religion, being taken away into exile, removed from the land, and others left behind to constitute a remnant of God's people to grow in the future. In Merkel's words, the prophets constantly warn Israel and Judah that their enemies will come and destroy their cities as a punishment from God. But God won't utterly destroy them. In his grace, he will leave behind a remnant who will cry out for help and salvation. So it's those who are left behind who are the blessed ones. So in light of this common prophetic image, Merkel suggests that Matthew's readers will be predisposed to hear taken as an expression of judgment and left behind as an indication of favor or salvation. And that makes a lot of sense. And Dr. Gibbs thinks it's right. Third, I mean, third, he's pretty convincing, right? Third, I can recall from my own reader something mentioned directly above, namely how often Jesus depicts the final judgment as separation. In these Matthean scenes, those who are being judged or rejected are always depicted as excluded, told to depart, or being cast out. Conceptually, this image of judgment corresponds much more readily with taken away and not left behind. Matthew's theme of separation at the judgment supports Merkel's suggestion based on Old Testament prophetic texts. So this interpretation results in a consistent image of judgment as Jesus speaks first of the flood and then of the sudden separation of individuals at the age's consummation. Although the exegesis or the, the reading of this smaller point in chapter 24 doesn't radically change the meaning of the passage, I side with those who understand that one will be taken refers to the fate of unbelievers at Christ's return 
and that one will be left refers to the salvation of believers at the Lord's return. The main point of the teaching is the suddenness and the unknowability of the day, which is why the unit concludes the way it does, because that day will come without sign or warning, and therefore Jesus' disciples are to keep watching. And Jesus repeats the point explicitly, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Jesus' concluding words will recur in substance twice more in this whole chain of stuff, and his repeated commands to keep watching and to be ready assume the truth that is spiritually healthy and beneficial for Jesus' disciples to be actively looking for his return and that it is spiritually dangerous for his disciples to neglect such attentive expectation. Why this might be so will be the subject of some reflection at the end of the commentary, which I didn't get for you. But he does make this comment. A little note on dispensational premillennialism, which is a great big term for the suppositions and expectation that lead to that um, interpretation of it. Um, that's what drives the Left Behind series. It's the idea that throughout time and throughout history, God has had different dispensations or ways of serving justice. Okay, And so it, it takes the Exodus, for example, as one example of a way that God deals with his people. And the Babylonian captivity as another dispensation or a way that God deals with his people. So many readers will have realized, of course, that if my suggestion about taken and left behind is correct, then it undercuts the reading of this passage that is well known to many through the so-called left behind series of novels. Mm. This is not the place to respond to dispensational premillennialism and its mistaken ways of reading the scripture. Mm. If you want resources for that, there are many fine helps quickly at hand. But here I offer a bit of advice to my fellow amillennialists, which is what the Lutheran stance is. The question of what is that thousand year period, we take it as a metaphorical explanation period. of the period of time between Jesus' ascension and when he returns. We're in the millennium now, okay? So we don't see it as a literal millennial, you know, thousand-year period of time, okay? Um, he's quoting from a guy named Holward, another um, commentator. While my interest in the relation of Jesus to Israel arose out of questions associated with the amillennial-premillennial debate, this book doesn't directly address the question of the millennium. An explanation of this omission will also help to explain the shape of this book. Behind the various eschatological or end times viewpoints labeled as millennial lie certain fundamental theological assumptions that shape the entire perspective. How one answers certain basic questions inevitably determines the shape of everything else. So once you're committed to a certain set of basic answers, the interpretation of most promised fulfillment texts seems self-evident. As a result, disagreement among end times viewpoints concerning the status and role of Israel isn't so much a matter of this or that isolated text as it is a matter of disagreement concerning foundational perspectives. My reader, in other words, should not overplay the effect of how one interprets the taken away or the left behind, even if a scholar who holds to a dispensational hermeneutic or way of reading it would grant the reading here suggested it wouldn't change much because more important questions of biblical interpretation separate the hermeneutics or the ways of reading it of Lutherans from those of dispensationalists. 
how you answer the larger questions, such as whether Jesus of Nazareth is Israel reduced to one, whether Jesus' post-Easter disciples are the true and new Israel of God in God's plan for the world determines your place in the scheme of eschatological perspective. His point is, there are some assumptions and presuppositions that people will bring to things that are going to color the way they understand everything. And, and what I hope you took out of this was, we have to be real, at least aware of what our suppositions and assumptions are when we read something like that. And so, you know, when you come at a passage like this about the taken and the, and the left behind, you've got to make a judgment call about which one of those two things is positive. And that is, in some sense and in some way, colored by what your understanding is of the overall narrative of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. This is your seminary class for the day. What's the name of that His name is Jeffrey Gibbs. Um, and um, Concordia Publishing House has a whole series of commentaries, and they're—I mean—they're pretty dense reads. They're really designed for pastors, but um, y- you can buy those from. They're about fifty bucks each. This one is, you know, covers a chunk of Matthew. <laughs> I'd like <laughs> so, to study Noah because he mentioned Noah yeah, in this yeah, thing. Didn't, yeah. didn't Noah tell the people that yeah, he was going to build an ark right. and that there was going to be a flood? Yeah, and they all thought he was crazy, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> right. we got the same thing today, but <laughs> Jesus coming right. back? Right. But crazy? but what you didn't have in the Noah in the Noah narrative was any certainty or knowledge about when that was going to happen. No. You know? So Noah's out there building this gigantic ark. Everybody thinks he's nuts because, you know, it's sunny and nothing's going on. And, and there's no warning about when this is going to happen, only that it will happen. Yeah. And so also we have the same warning from Jesus that says, hey, you know, I'm going to go to the Father, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And, and, and you don't know when it's going to happen, but you better be ready for it or you're going to get eaten by an alligator or something like that. <laughs> You know, and so it's the it's the you don't know the time, but you do know that the thing is going to happen, and so you better be ready whenever it happens. But yeah. Jesus is going to come back to rule. What's that? He is going to come back to rule. He is for eternity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and when that happens, there's that separation. Somebody said something about the sheep and the goats, yeah. right? So yeah. so I mean that's you know that's the imagery that you get is when Jesus comes back, he comes back in judgment. And the judgment results in a separation of those who believe in him and those who don't. And and how that plays out then is heaven and hell. I mean, literally, to get to it, to get, be real taken, blunt. What will be taken and right, what will be right, left. Right. And so now reading this with, with what we just talked about, all of a sudden, the one who is being taken is being taken to hell. <laughs> right? Boy, that changes your understanding all of a sudden, doesn't it? Okay, good. Makes a difference. Yeah. Okay, our time's up. We haven't even looked at Revelation. Uh, uh, and <laughs> I, I think it was worth it to kind of wander down that path a little bit, though, and understand what's yeah, going on. Yeah, but that's interesting. I've never thought of it right. that way. Right. But we are not to fear. Mm-hmm. We are the chosen of God right now because we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So we should be joyful in Absolutely, that. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, not dreading, not dreading. And, and here, in that, I would say, is the power of your baptism. Because it is because of your baptism that you know for certain that that promise has been applied to you. Um, I don't know if, I think we talked about it in here. You know, there's this, there's a distinction between 
a big theological term, right? But there's a distinction between um, subjective justification and objective justification. Subjective meaning uh, that you know that Jesus died for everybody, right? And, we, and everybody goes, yeah, Jesus died for everybody. Yeah, he died on the cross. It was for all people. He wanted to save everybody. How do you know that applies to you? No. You know, how, how do you know that you're included in all people that he died for? There's a test. Oh, what's the test? <laughs> who was Jesus Christ? Yeah, do you believe you in Jesus Christ? define who Jesus yeah. Christ was according to your inner being. And, and what it comes down to is, do you believe that he was the Son of God, that he was sent to die for your sins? And, and you can't say that without the Holy Spirit. Right. <laughs> exactly. Bang. Exactly. So, so ultimately, when Judgment Day comes, and, and this, is, this is another one of those things that I think is really challenging for people, right? We think about Judgment Day, and we're like, oh my goodness, Jesus comes down, he's going to weigh all the sins and all the scale, he's going to put all the good stuff I did on one side, he's going to put the bad stuff I did on the other side, and then, wow, I sure hope it tilts to the right side. That's not what Judgment Day is about. It is if you're a non-believer, right? And that's what, that truly is... And, and in that case, everything has to be on the good side. Anything on the bad side disqualifies you. I mean, you're dead. Sorry. The, the law has to be kept perfectly. Right? So if you're a believer, the only question is Jesus? That's it. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, cool. Go on in. <laughs> That's it. It's all about do you believe in Jesus Christ? Because he took all the sins and paid the price for him. And so you stand before Jesus on judgment day and stand before God as judge. And all that he sees for a believer is that you're covered in this robe of righteousness that covers all of your sins. And all he sees is Jesus. For a non-believer, now you got to talk about what your sins are. And there's no good outcome to that at all. Thoughts, comments, the questions. Worst sin being that you don't there you go. It's the, it's you the, might be the best person in the whole world. You know, that's right. Right. Yeah. Give your body to be yeah. burned. <laughs> so, <laughs> translations are funny things. Um, Paul talks about, you know, all of our works are, are I don't remember what the translation says. Right. Yeah, yeah. Dirt, filthy rags. Boy, that's like a, that's a really sanitized um, translation of what that says. I will ask me sometime privately, and I'll tell you what it is. But, but the, but the reality is, I mean, there's another place where, I don't, I don't remember how it translates, but dung is probably the best word. All your good works are crap without the Holy Spirit. Anything that you do outside the Holy Spirit, it doesn't buy you anything. It doesn't mean a thing. It's useless. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but that's the thing is, is that Paul talks about the one unforgivable, or Jesus talks about the one unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And what that means is, the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you and, and not accepting and, and receiving this gift that is being given to you. You know, really, when you stop and think about Judgment Day, yeah, that's one day, yeah. you know, as we think about it. Sure. Okay, there's seven and a half billion people in right. this world. Right. Are we going to meet with God one at a time and God only one year? That's a thousand years alone. You know? All I'm going to say We're is this, this is not a government operation. Not a committee. Jesus and God run a very efficient ship. <laughs> so it's got to be a pretty simple question you got to yeah. answer. <laughs> Go, 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 yeah. go. No, no, no. 
It says come and yeah. go. Come and then go. Yeah, right. Other thoughts, questions, comments, complaints, observations. Yeah, H.T. Well, <clears throat> none of my business, but I was always wondering why the Father God never shared that with Jesus about yeah. time. Yeah. You know, if you exclude one piece of information, then what else? What else is missing? So there, <laughs> that's an excellent question. There's an important hermeneutic to apply here. You don't know what a hermeneutic. I, it's a way of reading and a way of understanding something. Okay. <laughs> this is one of my very favorites. The the probably one of the top hermeneutics to apply when you read anything in Scripture is. God is always the good guy. Right? Yeah. And so, because the, 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 what's the underlying supposition there? Oh, he's withholding something. There must be, you know, it's like, well, I, but, and I'm not saying you're saying that, but, it, yeah. No, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. But it, but it is, yeah. It's like, who, oh, cool. What else did he not tell him? And, and why? You know, why, why didn't he tell him the time? That's interesting. But there are a lot of yeah. questions. I mean, the trumpet will sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, is yeah. that a warning? In this case, he's gonna when he comes again. There's gonna be a cloud and a trumpet. Yeah, is it? It could be a warning. Could be fanfare. Yeah. Right. Yes, Robert. Maybe it's above our pay scales. <laughs> it's all above our pay scales. Yeah, he didn't tell him because we didn't need to know. Yeah, it's all above our pay scale. That's for sure. Cool. All right. Any other thoughts? It was a rabbit hole, but it was an important one to go down, I think. Okay, so let's get back into Revelation then. We're in chapter 18. Um, again, I'm gonna, I'll read you, um, yeah, I'll read you the whole chapter, why not? What number are um, The lesson number is 21, but it's chapter 18. We got through the first three questions. You should have been here the week before when we did an entire sheet in a day. It was like, I don't know what happened, but the planets lined up. or It was incredible. All right. <laughs> Chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her, 
and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gained wealth from her, will stand far off, in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off, and they cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel looked up, took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Here ends the reading. This is dark stuff. All right. Um, so we talked a little bit about Babylon and kind of what's going on with the imagery here of, you know, Babylon as a physical place, but then Babylon is really metaphorical. Look at him. He just wants to stand up. That was his deal, wasn't it? Cute guy. Um, you know, so we, Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah 13, talks about the fall of Babylon Old Babylon was an instrument of punishment against the rebellious Israel, but it was also made an everlasting waste, paying the Babylonians back for their deeds. Um, so, you know, all of this kind of gives us some imagery about what's going on with this harlot of Revelation 18. So question number four, the voice from heaven calls God's people out of Babylon to escape her sin and arrogance. How did the Lord work through his prophet Jeremiah to discuss the same issues in Jeremiah 51, verses 6 through 8? Does anybody want to read that for us? 
flee from the midst of Babylon, let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. The repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. So suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Okay, so how does the Lord work through Jeremiah to talk about the same stuff? You know, Jeremiah is God's prophet, right? He's raised up as a prophet. And he acts as God's instrument calling the faithful out of Babylon. He's saying kind of the same thing that we're reading in Revelation, right? Um, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. He's, he's calling people to basically, here's the imagery that I think is most helpful. Babylon is, is representative of kind of the world, <laughs> sinful world, okay? And all of its enticements and what the world wants you to believe over against what God has told you is true. And, and so Jeremiah is calling people to step away from that. Now, it's physical Babylon here, but it becomes then metaphorical as we get into Revelation, where Babylon is representative of kind of all of the stuff that the world wants you to believe. And there's a call then to pull back from that and to, and to look for truth rather than this fancy-schmancy stuff that Babylon is pushing. Okay? Um, is that referring to the... Babylon is the world. Well, the world, the world in the sense of sinful, broken, fallen, opposed to God, worldliness. Okay. And so the only way to escape that is to is to separate yourself from it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a reminder that we should separate ourselves from seductive worldliness and to place faith in the Lord Jesus ahead of self-interest, greed, power idolatry, all the things that the world kind of sets up as those good things to seek out, God pushes against them and goes, no, <laughs> that, the, that the, you know, the virtues are not greed and self-interest and power and idolatry and all that kind of stuff that the world pushes. It's, it's the virtues that God pushes, love, compassion, um, peace, kindness, you know, all that kind of stuff. So is the Lord, in that passage that Skip just read, is the Lord sowing justice or mercy against Babylon in that section? Justice. Justice, justice right? Yeah. Yeah, there's no mercy there. He's, he's speaking words of judgment against it. Babylon was a golden cup, but now Babylon has fallen and been broken. I mean, there's nothing good in there for Babylon. Mm -hmm. How so? <laughs> so uh, we'll dig a little bit deeper. Her sins, where is it? What verse here? Um, Her sins. Where did it get off to? I'm going to go back to in Revelation. I'm sorry, I'm looking at Jeremiah. Yeah. Back in Revelation, um, is that just judgment, justice, or is it mercy against Babylon? Totally, yeah. And there, in, in Revelation chapter 18, um, verses 6 through 8 again, that's interesting. Pay her back as she has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Um, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, give her a like measure of torment and mourning. 
Um, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. She'll be burned up with fire and so forth. So it talks about her, her sins are piled up to heaven. God has remembered her crimes, all of them. Um, and because her sins are not forgiven through Jesus Christ, God doles out justice, just like he said he would. No real surprise there. It's a large vengeance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Against sin. Vengeance. So, so. Well, in the, in the, aren't they talking about the, uh, the perception of, of accumulation of wealth or value without the presence of God? Because yeah. God doesn't have anything against wealth. No, absolutely not. Over yeah. and over and over yeah. again. He beats the Jews over the head. And they make them wealthy again, and then they forget about God, and they get them over to heaven. Kind of a cycle in the Old Testament. About every historical document right. you want to read, right? We never learn. You know, one of my, <laughs> one of my, we don't. We're, we're not very bright. <laughs> one of my favorite misquoted Bible passages. What, what is the root of all evil? Money. Money. It's actually the love of money. Yeah. Everybody says, oh, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible passage says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Yeah. And, and, and so you're right. God, I mean, God doesn't have anything against wealth. Um, that, that's not the problem. The problem is, what, does your wealth become a God to you? Does, does, if, if God has blessed you with wealth, does that become your God? Is it your idol that takes your eyes off of the true God and suddenly you got a problem? That love of money becomes a problem. And, and so... I mean, what's go- we, ha- we have a just God. He says he's going to punish sin. He's not kidding about that. And, and he absolutely will punish sin. Now, there's one of two ways he does it. Either you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you have just said, hey, I'm, I got this, I don't need your help. In which case, you're standing on your own and your sin will be punished directly. And the only answer to that is hell. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. Or you've trusted in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for your sin on the de- on, on the cross and died for you and has dealt with all of that so that your sin has been forgiven. There you go. There's two paths. One way or another, God is going to punish sin. Somehow or another. Thoughts? Uh, there's there's a, a big difference there between... Uh, when you're forgiven for sin and we go ahead and do it again. Yeah. Uh, Which we do. We need to keep going back to Jesus all the time and and on and on and on because we can't leave one sin unforgiven. Yeah. So here's a weird thing. (laughs) There's this strange now but not yet to all of that. That all of your sins are forgiven and they were from the moment of Jesus' death on the cross and yet that hasn't come fully to fruition and won't until judgment day. So how do we, you know, how do we do that? And Luther talks about we go back to our baptism daily. And and we daily through repentance drown the old Adam and we emerge a new man every day. And so he Luther talks about our baptism as kind of being an ongoing thing. I mean it happens once, right? God has done what he's going to do. But then through remembering that, we continually go back in repentance for the sins that we've committed. Yes. This is like Groundhog Day. It is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Which is a very funny movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It's like we're constantly going back to God 
And, and there's that forgiveness that's always there for us. So we, we go back to the well of our baptism, if you want to call it that, to, to remember what Christ has done for us and to be thankful for that and to repent of our sins so that we can be made again into a new man. That's a constant regeneration. We've, I think we've talked about this. Your justification, you know, we talk about justification. That best way to remember it is just as if I had never sinned, okay? Your justification is, is what puts you right with God. It happens like that in your baptism. But your sanctification, being made holy, takes your whole life. It's a, it's a constant process by which God is, you know, working on you and pounding on you and molding you and, you know, burning you and refining you and making you better. And, and that's a lifelong process. And it's not completed until Christ returns and then the resurrection happens. We look forward to that. So um, I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, look, we got one question done today. One. Uh, uh, moving right along, moving right along. <laughs> and we will pick up there next time any final thoughts comments questions complaints any of that stuff it, like I said it was a rabbit hole that we went down at the beginning but it was an important rabbit hole I think um, so I thank hope that was helpful you. to you you're welcome yeah thank you're welcome alright let's close with a prayer then Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain that you sent us last week as a reminder of all the blessings that you pour out upon us. We thank you today, especially for graduates who have finished their course of study, either in high school or college, and just pray that you would continue to bless them as they go out and use that knowledge to, uh, to uh, glorify your name. Um, we thank you for Pastor Hope and uh, the, the ministry that you have given to him. We pray that you would bless him and bless Trinity Klein as he continues on with them. Um, we uh, ask also that you would bless our call process and help lead us to the man that we know you have already prepared to serve as our associate pastor. Uh, be with each of us as we go forth from here. Guide and lead us in all that we do that we might uh, be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Cheers.